You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, and welcome to the latest instalment of the Trowers and Hamlins and Knight Frank series of podcasts. We're here today to talk about the importance of non financial investment factors and in particular, the changing market views of ESG and the impact of generational transfer of wealth. My name is Ben Neary, and I'm a partner in the real estate investment and development team at Trowers and Hamlins. And I'm joined by my colleague, Catherine Lewis, a partner in our banking and finance team, as well as David Goatman, a partner at Knight Frank and the head of their energy, sustainability and natural resources department. David advises clients in the fields of renewable energy, ESG, energy procurement, carbon compliance and energy infrastructure, project development and finance, amongst other things. He's also a partner of Climate Kick, Europe's largest public-private partnership focused on climate change, and is an advisory board member of the Imperial College Centre for Climate Innovation. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Ben. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Ben. David, there's no doubt that chatter around non-financial investment considerations has increased significantly in recent years. And it feels like they've graduated from mere box-ticking exercise to having a real and sustained market influence. What trends are you seeing in the market? And what, in your view, are the main non-financial investment factors that are having the most influence? Thanks, Ben. Um, I think what we're all probably seeing across um, the areas of, of real estate, real assets investment, is a hugely increased focus on, on ESG and um, that combination of environmental social governance factors has been at play uh, for a number of years now, but arguably has been more about providing what sources of capital are looking to see um, and, and to, if you like, play the right music in regard of um, what investment managers and, and others are doing in that space. But in the last probably two years particularly, but it seems to be accelerating almost quarter by quarter, um, the focus has increased dramatically. And those, I suppose, previously high level uh, criteria or touch points around ESG are now becoming much more detailed and much more tangible in the actual uh, delivery of business plans, acquisition strategies, asset plans, all the way through, I suppose, all the elements of, of service that we provide as a real estate advisor through acquisition, leasing, asset management, debt, um, all the way through the business plan to disposal or, or redevelopment. So um, I'd say that that's the overriding uh, theme, which I think we're seeing certainly in our business across really all of the areas that we provide services in. And, and that's very different to the way it was two or three years ago. Thanks, David. Yeah, I mean, certainly in in my field, the, the big change that I've seen is that certainly environmental factors are forming a much bigger part of of the real estate strategies of of big occupiers, uh, and that is actually what's driving the, the, the main change. Are you seeing that in your with your clients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that. You know, I've, over the last few years, and I've been working in this area for for about sixteen years, seventeen years now. So, um, the, historically, it's probably been landlords that have been driving the um, 
I suppose, general understanding of what is good or not good in terms of ESG more than I'd say occupiers have on the whole. Um, but that itself is is changing and that 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 balance and dynamic is, is changing. And I think we're moving away from landlords being able to stipulate this is what good looks like and occupiers just saying, oh, okay, then that's fine. We'll go with that. I think occupiers are becoming a lot more um, detailed and focused upon what um, their real estate says about them as a, as a corporate actor. Uh, does it align with their overarching strategies um, in terms of ESG? And as we see more and more uh, corporates committing to net zero targets with specific dates for achieving them, then there's a clear implication of that for their real estate strategies and having to be in real estate that aligns with those commitments and doesn't act as a as a as a, a hindering factor. Um, so I'd absolutely agree that the 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 occupier um, focus has really changed over the last couple of years. I think Ben also there's been a couple of changes that have happened from a sort of a legislative and regulatory perspective that in addition to sort of the work we've seen people like David Attenborough and and Greta Thunberg and others doing um, has changed the dial a little bit. So obviously the UK passed legislation in 2019, um, which included a commitment for the UK to reach net zero by 2020. And alongside that was the green, they published their green finance strategy. Um, And the green finance strategy included in it a commitment that um, the government would require all large companies and large asset owners to be complying with the Task Force on Climate Disclosure recommendations by 2020. Now, that means that all large asset owners, which include an awful lot of landlords, need to be making sure that they are, if they're not already voluntarily complying with the recommendations on disclosure in there, that they will have to comply with them by the end of 2020. In addition to that, we've seen other changes over the last few years, such as the non-financial reporting directive, which I think came into force in the UK in 2018. And again, that includes requirements for companies to report on not just their sort of climate change and climate mitigation strategies, but also their diversity, inclusivity and other sort of non-financial factors which affect their business. Um, And at the moment, we are seeing a process of that, the non-financial reporting directive actually being... um, reviewed and updated by the European Commission. And I think the anticipation is that sometime over the next three months, we are going to see revised drafts of the the regulation itself to take into account um, changes that need to be made to it as a result of the disclosure regulation and the taxonomy regulation that have both come into force recently, but also to improve the disclosure of climate and environmental data by companies to better inform investors about the sustainability of their investments. And whilst those directives may not directly apply in the UK post-Brexit, UK asset owners are going to be looking to attract overseas investment. And so they're going to need to think about whether or not they want to comply voluntarily with some of those regulations. Yeah, so I mean, it seems to to me that that there's there's a sort of pressures growing from from both sides of the um, the market, really the the fundraising and capital and and, and financing side, and and the uh, the customer side, the the, the occupier, um, and uh, I suppose in one sense the the population, the the sort of uh, younger generations dri- driving these changes, which is 
requiring quite significant change now at, at asset level um, in, in terms of, of ESG and, and, and the project in a real estate sense that, it, that is being put out there by people. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that, Ben. It's really interesting around the, I suppose, the real estate product. And clearly, we're talking in a time of pretty severe um, disruption and dislocation in global commercial real estate markets. And that allied with what you've just referred to in terms of the pressure from both the, the occupier and landlord side would seem to point towards um particularly for newer developments and larger refurbishments, a renewed and, and perhaps greater focus than ever before on the product being more aligned with um, what, what corporate occupiers are looking to see from uh, in terms of environmental performance and getting away from, I suppose, going back to my earlier point, a kind of landlord-driven, relatively, and this might be an unfair thing to say, relatively simplistic approach of just getting a particular asset rating, such as a particular BRIAM rating or um, uh, that plus a particular EPC rating or so on, and thinking, well, that's kind of the job done. Um, I think the product uh, is changing. The real estate product is changing. There are examples of that in uh, new developments in London that we're involved with, such as the Edge at London Bridge, <clears throat> uh, who, of course, the Edge built arguably one of the most sustainable buildings, commercial office buildings in Europe in, in Amsterdam, um, let, let to Deloitte. Um, and so, yeah, I think the real estate product is changing and there's other property companies who are clearly uh, aiming for and in some cases achieving net zero with their new development. So with the pressure in the existing market where clearly most occupiers are looking to to take less space going forward uh, than they have done historically, plus the move towards uh, a much more granular and more substantive focus upon environmental performance. That would suggest that actually the product is going to be quite interesting going forward over the next few years and quite different than perhaps what's been built over the previous five, six, seven years. It obviously would be a bit concerning if one was sitting on a portfolio of largely secondary stock where improving environmental performance is difficult, is costly. As Catherine's pointed out, you have the pressure of the increasing legis legislative requirements, plus you're maybe not ideally positioned to benefit from um, the not just the environmental trends, but the shift towards a higher quality uh, prime uh, commercial real estate, which is almost certainly going to be seen in the market over the next couple of years. So, are are you seeing the the, the sort of larger developers uh, and landowners making that change now, or, or have they been slow to do it? And has it has it required? Uh, new and uh, more forward-thinking uh, property companies and developers to 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 give them a kick. Um, where think, where do you see them? Yeah, them? I, I think I think there's you know, there's obvious examples one could point to where you know there's there's a net zero scheme uh, underway. Do and London have got Landsec, BL. You know, for, if you take the big uh, listed propcos, um, arguably they've been performing quite well. Uh, already, um, probably in a bit of a vacuum of occupier guidance. Um, and I think that's where developments like The Edge are particularly interesting to me, where the, the rationale and the product that they're offering 
is much more focused upon the occupier experience of greater environmental quality um, as opposed to an asset rating where there may be some experiential elements that you could pick up from the occupier in a Briam excellent building, but in many ways it's not dramatically changing the occupier experience compared to um, the level of interactivity, the level of data coming out of buildings, sensors, reporting, um, analysis of how an occupier uses space and control of the environmental conditions within a building much more specifically to how an occupier uses space, which is what you see, for example, in the in the edge product. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the the ante is being upped, I think, in terms of what is going to be considered a, sustain, a sustainable commercial uh, building going forward. Um, looking back, you know, clearly once you've got um, a portfolio that's relatively mature, as is the case with, with nearly all of the large real estate investment managers and their various funds, um, it's not that easy to go in at the asset level and make dramatic improvements when you've got a, a, a balanced portfolio of industrial assets, which are probably on single let FRI leases. You've got retail parks that maybe you know aren't, aren't all particularly new. And then you've got a variety of commercial office uh, covering the full geographic um, range of, of main commercial real estate markets in the, in the UK. When, when you look at a portfolio, um, you know, one can see why it's not necessarily easy to do things very quickly and across um, a very large number of assets, which is why new development, of course, is, um, is much more the focus for the more groundbreaking initiatives. But as you as you say, David, it's not just the new development um, and the the benchmarks and the standards that we have seen have tended to focus on new development. You know, in terms of mm. um, the Briam standard and things like that. But actually, there is an increasing recognition. I think that you need to go beyond that, and you actually need to look at not just the design of the asset, but also the performance of the asset over over its lifetime. And you need to be able to take account of the data that comes from buildings and the use that the occupiers put it to. Uh, and we've certainly seen um, over the last few years provisions beginning to go into leases around occupier use of the property to ensure that you know green finance products uh, that are used to finance the development of those buildings are not going to the the borrowers are not going to lose the benefit of their green finance um, as a consequence of the way in which the occupiers are actually using using the property but I think also from an occupier's perspective um, they need to attract staff um, you know and, and saying that you are a sustainable business goes beyond just your your environmental performance you also need to think about you know what you are doing from a, a sort of a from the perspective of the impact on your people and that's both the people in the community where you operate and the, the people who work for you and creating businesses which have um, gen- are genuinely showing that they are committed to ensuring that they are minimising their environmental impact or improving their environmental impact, making sure that they have a positive impact on their community is one way for those businesses to attract and retain staff. You know, that focus helps to create a culture that people want to be a part of. And obviously, as the occupier of a, of a building, your building and the way in which you use it and the things that it offers your business is a part of that. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and even before the um, the pan, pandemic, there was a, a, a very significant growing focus upon health and well-being within particularly commercial office environments. And one of the areas that I think has been overlooked for many years is, is indoor air quality and around that, the, the wider environment that's being created within uh, an office space. And there's, there's plenty of, of pretty strong evidence now to support uh, a direct connection with productivity. So absolutely, as you say, Catherine, creating office spaces, workplaces, which are genuinely of a very high quality in terms of uh, the health provision to uh, people that work in those buildings, improving indoor air quality, creating indoor green spaces and getting a lot more uh, of a natural environment internally, controlling services and systems such as lighting and HVAC so that they're not um, uncomfortable or oppressive environments internally. That whole general trend towards um creating more you know, modern, pleasant, healthier workplaces for all the reasons that you mentioned, Catherine, was, was going pre-COVID. It's been accelerated massively by what's happened in the last six or seven months where it's moved right to the top of the list of, of kind of critical criteria that an occupier requires from the space that they, that they have and not just um, kind of covid safe as it were but actually what what is the building the landlord the management doing to ensure that technology is being utilized uh, and all uh, all different avenues and different initiatives are being pursued in order to make the space uh, a healthy and um, uh, and vibrant and enjoyable place to be because you know we're still running at something like 25 to 30% office occupation after the pandemic hit in March. And if you're in the business of uh, being a commercial landlord, whether on the PropCo side or the, or the, or the fund side or sovereign funds or, or, or other types of investor, it's not great if people don't want to work in your buildings. And therefore, what was already a trend before COVID has been massively um, catalyzed and accelerated over the past six or seven months and I think landlords are going to have to do a lot more in terms of the offer that they are putting forward to their occupiers to get people to want to come back and work in their buildings and a a very market leading approach to health and well-being and indoor air quality and creating spaces that are different than traditionally what office spaces have been is going to be a big part of that. Ben I was going to say i this is sort of your area of expertise rather than mine, but um, I would have said that the the type of office space and the things that you are offering, which, as David says, is, is going to be absolutely critical going forward. You also need to have a little bit or give a little bit of thought to the people who are actually going to be occupying um, your workplace, because, I mean, certainly as a as a like many other businesses, we have, we're very aware that the people who are more likely to need to be coming into the office for health and wellbeing reasons at the moment, perhaps are um, Generation Y or millennials uh, who work 
who are a part of our business, but who perhaps don't have um, space at home um, to be able to work from home um, over the long term, you know, in the lockdown situation, which we've just seen, obviously, it's been absolutely fine. But you know, we, we heard plenty of stories of people sort of, you know, having to you know, make desks out of ironing boards and things like that temporarily. Um, and whilst that can work very, very short term, it's not a solution long term. Um, and it is very much my sense that it's ensuring that the the office space that you make available as a as a landlord has to attract back millennials, the, the Gen Y people in our workplace, more so than perhaps it needs to attract back um, the people like, like me who are fortunate enough to have space to be able to work at home um, and close the door on that space at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I, it's quite an interesting, it's a, it's, a, it's a point at which where the landlord's um, position in terms of wanting to attract occupiers to, to keep the space and the occupiers themselves interests are aligned because obviously there is a a um, motivation for the businesses and the occupiers themselves to attract the work- workforce back to the office um the, there is you know the whether it's productivity um arguments or its health and well-being uh, e- even before covid uh, some of our occupier clients were, were spending enormous amounts of money to make the office place an attractive place for people to come because they, they'd felt that there'd been a drift away from from um, regular office visits and they wanted to encourage it. And, you know, they took a sort of workplace as a service approach where, the, you know, part their, their real estate department was very much focused on making the workplace um, a service and delivering to their employees this this sort of office service um, for them. And, and the occupiers and landlords will now be aligned on that because there's there's the covid has has resulted in this sort of um this big sudden push away from the office and now we need to yeah they need to looking how are we going to get people back and i think whether it's environmental uh factors it's it's the social and health and well-being side of things that um that you've just touched on I, i think that there's going to be a lot of hard work to be done uh to to address that and it's going to be quite interesting to see it how it evolves yeah i think what's really interesting ben about the 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 point you just made there on um the kind of alignment of interest is that um and i'm fully aware that i'm saying this in the context of speaking to a leading law firm is the relationship between occupiers and landlords has often been very legalistic and um i wonder whether that alignment of interest um, not just around uh, health, healthy workplaces and everything you just mentioned, which I completely agree with in terms of trying to make it more attractive and worthwhile for occupiers being in buildings, but also around net zero, where there's also clearly an alignment of interest, um, whether that will lead to changes in the legal relationship and dynamic that has traditionally existed between occupiers and landlords, where it is normally very formal and you know you can't you can do this you can't do that there's a process by which you need to get uh, permission for making any alterations to your space there are things that are landlord responsibilities things that are, that are tenant responsibilities i wonder whether there will be um any changes in the future potentially in the near future around how landlords and occupiers are willing to work together in different ways and whether there are implications you think for the perhaps traditional legal 
relationship and dynamic that's existed between landlords and occupiers. Yeah, I I mean, it's obviously something that's been been, um, in the frame for a while now. And whether it was in retail or, or in office, there's... There's obviously always been that that slight complaint uh, on sometimes that it is too un- inflexible at times, and uh, the I think we saw with with WeWork, although it's slightly failed experiment on their part, um, and the move to to flexible office terms and uh, co-working spaces that there is a market for that. You will always have this tension between the fact that it's a you know investment. A lot of cases, an, an investor's capital asset, uh, which they will be protective of, uh, and they don't, they, you know, they want to make sure that nothing is going to affect their their capital investment. So it, it, it's finding a balance between between making sure there's protection on that side, but but having the flexibility in the arrangements to allow tenants to make the product attractive to tenants. So there is that 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 flexibility to to do works that would improve the you know, the environmental performance of a building to stop tenants being required to rip out what is a perfectly good fit out um, just because the lease says that they have to and they would get a huge dilapidations bill at the end of it Um, there is just you know it it is and I'm sure there is a way of finding that that the balance between the two especially with now the the landlords focused on on making sure that they're hitting their uh, ESG performance factors and part of that will be met by by being flexible in their lease terms and their offerings to tenants um mm-hmm. but it's yeah i don't think it's a new it's a new uh, issue um it's been going on for a long time um and, it, and it's not dissimilar to the the turnover rent uh, question you have in in the retail market where uh, people have been saying for forever that you know landlords and tenants need to find a a, a new way of working together uh, but for whatever reason, it never quite never quite gets there. But maybe COVID is 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 that uh, the, the kickstarter to it to, to to big change. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, a huge amount of my time is spent trying to navigate, I suppose, the realms of the possible between landlords and occupiers, and that's in the context of of things that you would think like, say, renewable energy projects or. Um, getting ba- better data out of buildings or getting technology retrofitted into buildings that gives you better data to allow you to do more analysis to then do more projects. It's constantly navigating that what's possible in the, in, in, in the world of this is what the landlord can do and is required to do and this is what the tenant can do and is required to do. Yet there's a clear alignment of interest that, that you know, going back to the net zero point, if a corporate occupier has made a commitment to be net zero by, say, 2030, then they want to be in real estate that's going to be conducive to that commitment being achieved successfully. They're not going to want to be in real estate that's going to hinder them in doing that. So from the occupier perspective, there's lots of things that they do want. And landlords, exactly as you say, there are lots of things that, that landlords and, and investors into real estate also want to happen. But yet, it so often doesn't happen. And you know there seems to be an alignment of interest, which is which is natural and obvious. And yet, it is still not that easy to make projects actually work on the ground even when um that alignment is is much much clearer and much stronger today than it ever has been before and i do wonder whether that's going to filter through into changes um in the ways that landlords and tenants interact and you know what the next um generation of 
what have generally been called green leases will look like and whether they are much more detailed and collaborative and less kind of we will try to do x y and z and something else and and not being a lawyer i'm not not sure what something else will will look like in terms of how that relationship is documented but it does seem that there's a huge opportunity there to do things uh, much more rapidly and more substantively because the alignment is so much more than it has been before. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right, and I think the pressures we've talked about from from the financing side and equity raising side to the to the um, customer side uh, and the, the demand on that side is going to force that that change. I think. Um, I think that especially the net net zero commitments you've got from those occupiers, as you say, they're not the occupiers are not going to meet those commitments from existing stock and they're going to be driving and looking for 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 products that that enable them to meet those commitments and 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 that's you know the landlords and the property owners who can offer and meet those commitments are going to be the best place people in the market and in order to meet those commitments they've got to be flexible in terms of of what they're allowing their occupiers to do and what they're offering so that is probably going to be the main main driver i feel and and We've got some quite clear lines in the sand now, haven't we? In terms of on a nationwide basis, uh, European wide, uh, and at the corporate level, where people are going to be making sure that they hit these commitments, uh, and and that's what's going to actually really drive the the change. I think. I think also, Ben, from a from a financing and investment perspective. Um, Banks in particular now routinely look at a business's uh, environmental, social and governance commitments to as part of their overall credit and risk analysis when deciding whether or not they're going to, to lend and investors do the same. And so that pressure uh, on business on both landlords and their occupier businesses are, is going to help to sort of drive and contribute to those changes being made because, you know, to the extent that a, an occupier or a landlord is looking for finance, uh, whether that's from equity or debt, if they can't demonstrate that they are taking account of ESG factors, they are going to struggle to get finance um, or raise capital at a at a price that is going to be attractive and allow their business to, to actually continue into the future. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's definitely going to be a... a a big consideration a big driver of change Catherine I think that's um that's certainly right the the one thing I wanted to touch on um before we signed off on this was we've talked in an awful lot about about environmental things um obviously there's there's two other factors to to, to ESG um David I suppose I'll ask you first how much do you think the social and the governance side of things are driving change at the moment or is environmental still the, the dominant force as it were? I think environmental is still dominant but there's a, a, a much greater focus upon social value and how you quantify and measure and portray in a in a sensible understandable way what the social value is that you are creating as particularly as a, as a landlord as a, as a property company or a or, a real estate fund um, organizations such as social value portal which you know has probably only really come onto the onto the scene in the last two or three years are um, leading I would say in that space and we have more and more clients who are significant owners of real estate um, who are measuring and 
organizing their uh, social value activities in a way which um, ha- hasn't necessarily been the case more than two or three years ago. Um, and you know, legal in general, as an example, um, I know are doing a huge amount of work on measuring, assessing the social value of um, not just their real estate development, which is in some ways a little bit easier and has perhaps been the way that it's been done historically, i.e. X number of jobs created from this development, this amount of construction activity has an obvious um, training and skills benefit and so on and so forth, but also through the asset management, which kind of goes back to a a theme that we've mentioned mentioned before on on asset ratings and, and so on is, you know, in general, I'd say on the environmental side, but also on, on, the, on the point that I'm making now around social value, there's been a much greater focus historically upon new build and major refurbishment and much less upon what's actually happening with an asset once it's built. And, and that's, that's always been, um, I think, a, a huge blind spot in our approach as, a, as an industry because you know, you're talking about two, three percent um, renewal rates in, in terms of most developed countries and, and, and rebuild and new development. So if you're only touching on that percentage of the building stock, whether it's through uh, social value initiatives or through environmental initiatives, then you're probably not going to have the, the biggest impact. It has to be focused upon the, the vast majority of assets, which are you know buildings that are going to be standing for 30 odd years and are generally occupied at a pretty high rate and are used for all the different things that buildings are used for. So that move towards, I suppose, integrating, uh, whether it's environmental or social, much more across the life cycle of the asset is is obviously a good thing, uh, rather than just focusing on arguably the easier bit, which is building very sustainable brand new buildings. But to go to your question, yes, I think because of the declaration of climate emergencies because of the commitments of net zero, obviously, as Catherine says, in UK law at a national level in 2050 in the UK, but flowing from that, lots of corporate commitments all the way from 2050 to kind of 2025 to 2030, depending upon the type of organisation. That's continuing to make environmental probably the, the, the most important of the three pillars of of ESG, but saying that governance is a cross-cutting theme. So how your governance in relation to your environmental management of your assets is very important. Your governance in relation to your management and quantification of social value in your assets is very important. So to an extent that that is um, almost a, a linked pillar, if you like, if that's if that's a structural construct that makes any sense, a linked pillar, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's cutting across the other two, I guess is what I say. And certainly in terms of the quantification of social value, I think that is a trend which, again, is very rapidly developing Um, and I think that's very important because there has to be a way that you can present understandably what it is that you are creating in terms of the social value through your real estate assets and simply stating a list of initiatives which are often very specific to the locality and type of asset that you're, you're referring to isn't a, a currency that can be that easily understood sector wide. So I think initiatives such as Social Value Portal, which are helping uh, and others, which are which are helping to quantify the the social value of real estate assets, not just in development but through the whole asset lifecycle, are important initiatives that are um, making it 
much easier for real estate owners to engage with that theme. Yeah, and I suppose on the the governance side, you know, that's that's really what um, Catherine has talked about in terms of financing and equity fundraising. It's going to be very important on that, on that side of things to to show to investors that that your your governance is is up to scratch. Um, and it brings me on also to what we've talked about before. Catherine is um, what certainly you've talked about is the the generational transfer of wealth, and I suppose mm. the, the Greta Thunberg generation and having having more control over their pensions and the, the the flow of money through to that generation who are probably more focused on non financial factors um, in terms of where that where their money goes, where the pension money goes, and whether that I wonder whether that is going to have. Uh, a big influence on on how companies in the real estate sphere and, and elsewhere conduct their business. Yeah, I think I think it will because um, you know we are we are all much more able to control how our our wealth is invested now, whether that's by sort of speaking to pension managers and saying that we want to have our pensions. Uh, pension funds invested in a particular way or whether it's sort of, you know, more personal investments such as ISAs and things like that, you know, we can say we want it, uh, want that money used to support um, businesses that have an environmental social governance are taking ESG factors into account. But also I think, I think I read a, a statistic which was that by, I think by this year, it was, there was an expectation that in the USA, 24 or $25 million worth of wealth would have been inherited by um by the, the Greta Thunberg generation effectively and they are much more likely to want to invest their money in a way that reflects their values and their values are quite different to the, the sort of more traditional values perhaps of their parents or their grandparents generation which were much more around risk and reward they no longer necessarily want to invest solely for the reward if that reward is financial they want to see a combination of returns financial social environmental and other things and so i think we can't discount the fact that um there is going to be over the next sort of 10 15 years a huge transfer of wealth through the generations and that the generation who are inheriting that money are going to want to use it in a way which is quite different to the way in which it has been used to date um, well, I think that probably wraps up our, our very interesting conversation on non-financial investment factors. Uh, I'd like to thank both Catherine and David for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure to speak to you both. Thanks very Thanks, much. Thanks. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.